Well, welcome back to those of you who, uh, who have been following this series so far. Uh, you've made it through Jesus saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. You've made it through Jesus saying, now go sell everything, and you're still here. So, like, congratulations on that. We're, uh, we're about halfway through, so stay tuned. Um, and I don't know if it's me, but it seems like the, the words just sort of amplify as we kind of make, make our way through this series. He said what? The crazy sayings of Jesus. And that certainly wasn't uh, on purpose at all, but nevertheless, it, it, it seems to be the case. Um, before we get into the hard saying this morning, I, I want to do something. Just everybody close your eyes where you are um, and just say a few simple words after me. Just say, I want to be great. Say, one, two, three, I want to be great. Don't you? Doesn't it feel good to just admit it? Like so often we have this uh, tendency, we have this thought, mistakenly so, I think, that, that like for some reason we, we, we can't admit to wanting to be great. We, we can't want greatness. And so there's something cathartic about the experience of just saying out loud, I want to be great. I mean, like, nobody goes into a job interview and they ask you, so what, what do you want? What do you see in your future in the company? It's like, you know, thinking hard, I want to be the number five sales leader of this branch <laughs> is what I'm aspiring to. A kid picking up a tennis racket for the first time, goes out, loves it, goes to bed dreaming that night about someday playing in third doubles of the regional quarterfinals. <laughs> no, it's always first singles. It's always state championship, right? Because we want to be great. I tell you, we want to be great so much that we even have a tendency to like rank Everything, just assign greatness a number so we can you know, more precisely measure just how great we are. We can measure how many you know, retweets go out, how many likes, the Facebook picture of the cat with the funny top hat on it, you know, how many shares it gets, how many people see it. We like to be able to measure it when you're a kid and you run outside for a little while, you know, laps around the house, just get exhausted, come in for a cheese sandwich, run back outside and keep running around for a little while. When you're an adult, you have to quantify the fun, and you have to wear one of the smart watch with the GPS tracker just to know how far you've run, how fast you've done it, so you can assign a number to your fun level. Guilty of it myself. <laughs> no, we want to be. We want to be great. That's true. Now, the mistaken notion, I think, is that for some reason when we come to church, we get the, we get the sense like greatness is now frowned upon, that we, we shouldn't want to be great, that what God really wants for us is to aspire to mediocrity. <laughs> like we shouldn't excel in anything one way or another, but we should all just kind of mellow out and be sort of blah. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case because we go to a place in the Bible where, where the disciples are arguing about greatness. Um, we just, first verse, uh, indulge me here, on the back of the flow sheet, uh, also on the screen behind me. Uh, just the first verse of nine of them here. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want to know. Now, I just want to point out something in here that Jesus does not, fundamentally disagree with their premise. 
Right? What we're going to see in just a minute is that this, uh, this Jesus is not going to shoot right back to them. You, you know what? Your problem is all wrong. You shouldn't want to be great and mix it up. No, that's not what he's going to do. He's going to do something interesting. We've, we've come to learn that about Jesus so far. He's going to turn it around. But he doesn't, he doesn't deny the fact that they should want, want to be great. He just tweaks it a little. You, we, we want to be great, but what Jesus does is is simply just tweak that understanding a little bit. Um, Some of you might be coming back and saying, you know, I'm not not quite sure about the the greatness, you know, um, theme for the morning. Like, I'm a little uncomfortable. It might head into some pride areas, and I'm not necessarily, not all about that, a little uncomfortable. Just to to shore that up a little bit more. Um, Fun Bible passage, I think, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians that I think really hits it well. By the way, if you're uh, you're new to, like, reading the Bible and you're figuring out why these crazy um, books have uh, just bizarre names to them, like Corinthians, a letter is... It's a book, but it's a letter written to the church in the city of Corinth. So just like you're all maybe Grand Rapidians, they'd be Corinthians. Um, Paul is going gonna, is gonna to share an image about greatness for them. And as he's, he's trying to think of these words, he's, he's reaching up you know, and trying to just put the, the, the precise image on how he wants them to be great. And so he goes to a place that they're familiar with. He goes to an image that they know very, very well. Because in the city of Corinth, just outside of town, there was a stadium. It was a stadium where they would compete. They would run, they would jump, they would go through the athletics, and it came to be known once a year when they celebrate these things. It's called the Isthmian Games um, because it's on like the Isthmus uh, of Corinth. Corinth is right on this little narrow uh, area in between two big bodies of land with lots of cities on them, and you had to pass through Corinth. made it a popular city. By the way, if you're trying to learn uh, Greek one word at a time by coming to church on Sunday, uh, isthmus is the ancient Greek word for neck. So you think like connecting two large bodies, one's head, depending on who you are, and the body, the isthmus is the neck. This is kind of where the city is. Very popular city, stadium outside, the Ismian Games were celebrated there once a year. Other notable games around the area were the uh, games at Delphi and the games at Olympia. That one kind of stuck around for a little while. All the games were very similar. It was mostly Greeks competing, but not necessarily only Greeks. They'd come to the area, they'd stay outside the uh, stadium in their own little city, like a village, um, their own village, and they'd train and condition one last time and all stay together for a month before the games were actually held. At all three of these games, they were given a specific prize. At the uh, Isthmian Games, they were given celery if they won, if they did a good job. They won whatever competition. And by the way, it wasn't just athletics, but it was music and drama along with it. But if they won the competition, they'd weave these celery branches together and place that crown on somebody's head. Later on, it became uh, pine branches that they'd weave together and lay on the head, along with a cash prize. At the Games in Olympia, they would weave together the laurel leaves that you see on the boxes of Little Caesars, and they would lay that on somebody's head as a way of saying congratulations. You won. This was the prize that everybody was after. This was a huge deal. 
In fact, it was such a big deal in ancient times that even though cities might be at war with each other and actively fighting, during the time of the games, they would set that aside, call a temporary peace treaty, and the athletes were invited to come out and compete and then then be granted safe passage to get back to wherever it was that they were from. This is how seriously they took the games. In this case, they're Ismian games with a prize of that crown. Paul, looking for an image of greatness, is trying to inspire these people to live more like Christ and to love more like Christ. And he says in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian people in uh, uh, chapter 9, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. I have a feeling he's not talking about a participation ribbon, right? Like he wants to inspire these people toward greatness, to, to, to excel in something. Run as if to get the prize. Uh, later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, uh, we covered it in a series earlier this year in January called The Christian Atheist, based loosely on a, on a book by that name. Um, but uh, the, it, the idea of Revelation, chapter 2, is there's an angel in heaven who writes down to this church and says, you know what, you're, you're neither you're hot nor you're cold. You're, you're like this tepid in-between, and it's disgusting, and it's lukewarm, and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This image that we came from, it said, you know what, if you don't excel one way or the other in nothing, it's disgusting and it makes me want to vomit. So be great. Even the idea of what it means to be a student, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or a philosopher or any other wise person meant setting aside everything that you were to become exactly like your leader, your rabbi, your teacher, your philosopher, your wise man that you're following. Be great. By the way, if any of you have have come here today with that in mind, that you desire to follow Jesus, to be a student of his, to be his uh, disciple, and he is your rabbi, what you're aspiring to is nothing shy than being exactly like Christ. If if that doesn't scream, be great, I don't know what does. Now, when the disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, tell us, who's the greatest? And they have something in mind. Because they've got uh, insider information about Jesus. Is that they have believed, rightly so, and they have bought into, rightly so, the fact that, that their rabbi isn't just a rabbi. Their rabbi is a king. He just hasn't been crowned yet. And they know something about kings because they've been ruled by kings. And as far back as anyone can ever remember, there has always been a king. Whether it was the king and the Romans or the Greeks or the Assyrians or the Persians or the Babylonians, for as far back, there's always been a king and there's always been a kingdom. And there's always been farmland and crops and cities and vineyards and people and all of it needed a ruler. 
And so the disciples know if there's a king and there's a kingdom, there's probably a court. There's probably trusted advisors along the way. There's probably people who got in on the ground floor, believed early like they do for Jesus, and now they're arguing, okay, when we line up at the table, Jesus, who gets to sit closest to you? Which one of us is going to be your right-hand man? Which one of us is, is going to be the, the greatest when you set up your kingdom? And he doesn't, he doesn't deny them. He doesn't shut down their desire to be great. What he does instead is something bizarre. The next few verses, uh, verse 2. So he called a little child whom he placed among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes a humble place, becoming like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. He doesn't, he doesn't deny that they ought to want to be great. He just says the path to greatness doesn't necessarily lie where you think it does. The path to greatness lies in becoming like one of these kids. Now, we have sort of a, a disadvantage when we look at a story like this. Uh, we, we have a disadvantage because when we come into a story where Jesus brings this little kid up on stage, I, I imagine the kid as just, you know, cute as can be. He's like patiently sitting there, like looking out at it, probably terrified because this has never happened before, but so scared that he's not loud, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and Jesus says, this is, this is your role model. This is what to aspire to. The, the disadvantage that we have is that the image when we think of as kids is like, oh, it's adorable, and we call our kids like precious and cutie pie, and we, we generally like children. If you've got a three-year-old at home, this may not apply to you. I hear that you'll get there again at, at some other point, but generally we, we, we really like kids. So it doesn't seem entirely bizarre for Jesus to call a kid up on stage and be like, you know, this is what... This is greatness. This is what to shoot for, like innocent and adorable and, and cute. It's a little weird maybe, but like, well, like I said, that's our disadvantage. Back then, they had a very, very different view of children in the household because most households couldn't couldn't support very many kids. Most households operated on a scarcity of resources. And so one more kid that comes into the house, this isn't going to pay off for a long, long time. And it's just one more um, uh, competitor for the family's resources. We only have a fixed amount of, of time and of finances and just to be blunt, of food. And every time one more comes in, it might mean that somebody else doesn't get enough. And so their view of children were as a, a, long, a long investment, we'll say. And, and only the choicest investments were chosen, were opted for. What this means is that in that day when a baby was born, they'd take the baby and they'd lay it before dad's feet. And dad would have a chance 
a chance to choose. He could either pick that child up and symbolically telling the community that this is now his, he's welcoming it into his house, and he'll do what he can to support it for however long he can. Or he could walk away. And the child would be brought outside into the woods or outside on a bluff somewhere and be left. If there was anything, anything at all atypical about the baby that was born, dad would walk away and try again with the next one. I, I, I can't describe to you the tragedy that was involved in first century times when it came to, to having children. A famous uh, philosopher um, wrote lots of sayings, lots of books. Uh, Seneca, his name was. One of the sayings that he had, one of the things he wrote down was just making an observation about how they ran their local economies, their households. He said, we slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife into um, the, the weakest cattle, children who are born weak or deformed, we drown. Excavations in cities, first century cities, they'd have these bathhouses. They're, they're structures built on running water, a city that's built into the hillside, and so it's either a man-made canal or maybe a natural river running down. And so it's a, a city-wide sewer system, essentially. Excavations, and centuries, centuries later, they dig these things up, long time dried up, and they found bones of children, of girls. Like I said, I cannot describe to you just how little value children had and what a statement it would make when Jesus finds a little one and brings him up in front of everybody and say, this is not a charity case. This is something to aspire to. We, we said in the series that, that the shocking statement that Jesus makes, that, that the crazy saying that he had was later on when he says, gouge out your eye, but not exactly true. Because I think in this context, for the people listening right then, they've heard statements like gouge out your eyes before. The shocking statement that Jesus makes is taking a child and putting him in front of them and said, this is your goal. This is what we're, what we're aiming for. And the, and the immediate objection to all that would be, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Jesus, you don't have kids. Jesus, you don't know the kind of resources that they require from the family. Jesus, you don't know just what it takes and the danger that, that children put the rest of the family family in if, if we can't support them. Jesus, you don't know, and here it is, you don't know that these kids are 100% utterly dependent on their father and mother. 
And I think if that was voiced to Jesus, he'd say exactly. God does want you to be great. But to show them what greatness looks like, he doesn't show them a a, a warrior or someone who's won battles or made money. What he shows them is someone who is completely aware that they are 100% utterly dependent on their father and their mother. And he says, this is greatness. Just knowing it. Admitting it. And then he goes on and, and makes kind of a bizarre next line. If we, we could say it in our own language, we could say, this is what greatness is, realizing that we're dependent on God. What detracts from our greatness might not be what you think it is. Let's read together the next uh, line here. Uh, verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, Cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands, two feet, and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown in the fire of hell. By the way, we like look at that and go, you know what? Never heard any stories of any of the disciples are following Jesus, cutting off their hands, gouging out their eyes, and we know that they were all sinners, that they all stumbled. So I guess Jesus was just exaggerating, and we can kind of chalk it up to using a literary device here and move on. I just want to make something like clear, that Jesus is not exaggerating. As crazy as that sounds, I, I don't think that what he's doing here is coming over the top at all. I mean, he, he is employing a rhetorical device. He is not suggesting that we, that we do maim ourselves as none of his disciples did. That's true. He's not exaggerating, though. I think he's making an observation for us to say, I, I want you to be great. God wants you to be a great disciple. And that means being utterly dependent on him. And by the way, what detracts from your greatness as a disciple of God is the fact that sometimes you you can allow sin to to creep up in your life. And the language here is of stumbling, is of like tripping and falling down uh, habitually over and over and over again. Now, it's easier to see, and I think this is why he said the millstone part, it's easier to see in other people than it is in ourselves, right? You can kind of see it in somebody else, like, oh, that person really struggles, you know, with like X, Y, or Z. You know, I can notice that immediately. They, you know, have a little harder time. When it comes to me, it's a little bit more gray area, but I can see it in somebody else. So he starts off noticing that in, in somebody else. Like if somebody causes one of these kids to stumble, if someone causes one of these kids to be put on a trajectory that their life starts to look more like hell than heaven, 
it would be better to just end it there than to let that continue. And end it there by tying a millstone around their neck and throwing them into the, into the water. I, I, w- I wanted to bring one of these like, millstones on stage, you know, to say, like, you know, I'm thinking about this hand tool in a kitchen, you know, maybe not a kitchen drawer, but maybe the pantry down below, and you grind up wheat with it to separate, like, the wheat and the, the crunchy outside stuff. And, uh, and this, you know, household item, that's true. When it says large millstone, what it actually says um, is the, a donkey millstone. So, uh, not the household version. <laughs> we're talking like the commercial variety <laughs> of millstone. Uh, we're not talking a, a few pounds. We're talking a few hundred pounds. Think large wheel, which like has a bar attached to it, and then uh, you know like a, a fulcrum. I guess that's probably not the technical language here. But and then the the donkey on the other side, and then the donkey would just walk around in a circle, and the wheel would just grind up, and it'd be a couple of guys like putting putting the wheat um, in, the, in the way of the millstone. Now, you know, like 300 pounds, I thought. Maybe if we had a permanent location, you know, we could, like, bring that in. No, no. Uh, a point is, you know, easier to see in other people. Like, you lead a child away, this is what, what ought to happen. It'd be better. And he goes, by the way, it's not just true for somebody else. What's true for you is true for me. What's true for him is true for her. I'm not making an observation, or I'm not making an exaggeration when I say that it, it would be better. Heaven with one hand is better than hell with two. It's not exaggerating. That's just outright true. Getting there, though, I think why the disciples didn't lose the hands, I mean, that, that's somewhat obvious, right, that my hand doesn't cost me to sin. You, you gouge out one eye, and whatever it was that you were looking at that caused you to stumble, that caused you to trip up habitually, you gouge out two eyes, you, you might have some, some remedy, but no, one eye, that's not going to solve anything. That's not going to fix anything. Just not an exaggerating. It, it'd be better to surgically remove Whatever it does, whatever it is that does cause you to stumble. I I think for everybody it's different, right? But just imagine, like, wait a second, no exaggeration here. What, what is it, what is leading me away from God? What is leading me down a, a road that, that just, I have no business being down? And that's going to make my life look more like hell than heaven, I mean, is it, is it possible that there's a, a relationship in my life that's just nasty and toxic, just like gossip and just competing 24-7? Just uh, one of these like, like enemy kind of things, but you just can't stay away. Is there a relationship in my life that is just so toxic that, that frankly it just needs to be removed, cut out? even as painfully as it can be? Is there a technology? Is there a technology that, I mean, just honestly needs to be removed and needs to be cut out? 
Is there a habit? Is there a disposition? Is there a way of reacting when you get some kind of news, any kind of news, and you like immediately go into this place that's ugly and nasty, and frankly, it has no place in the life of God, in the grace-filled life, and it just needs to be removed. It's not an exaggeration to say, you know, heaven without it, isn't it better than hell with it? It is. Then what does that life look like? And could you just imagine, imagine for a minute, you know, with, with, uh, with divine intervention, there's no way of getting around that, but just being graced with God's Holy Spirit to have the courage to make that removal of, of whatever it is inside of each of us that just has no place in the kingdom of God. What, what, is, what does life look like when we start cutting those pieces of life off that don't belong? What does life look like? What do people say about how you go to work and the integrity that you have in, in selling this, that, or the other thing? What are the observations that people make about your family when, when they can see whatever doesn't belong gets cut off and removed? Here's the one. What does it do to the influence that you have over people who don't know Christ when they can see you constantly removing any area of your life that doesn't look like his. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it may just change someone's eternity. Even your own. Let's uh, stand up so you can pray for you this week. Our gracious uh, Heavenly God, you have laid before us this week a challenge, a challenge to cut off whatever doesn't belong, whatever areas of our life that, that don't reflect your greatness, Lord. It, it, this is, it's what we desire is to be like you, is to be great and great disciples. God, help us to lean on you with every fiber of our being at least this week so that, Lord, we can, we can be closer to you and we can lead others closer as well. In your name we pray. Amen.